now have one minute to abandon ship. The ship will automatically destruct in T minus one minute. I will win the crowd. I will give them something they've never seen before. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to the Duel of the Greats podcast, folks. We are already at episode seven in season one here, and this week we're doing Spy versus Spy. We're going to put Ridley Scott's Body of Lies up against Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, the besides the fact that both are about espionage, the, the symmetry in naming of the two is something that I really appreciate. I'm a big symmetry guy, so I thought that was fun. Um, so we're going to dig into that just a second. But before that, of course, introductions. I am Jeff Herr. With me are our historian, Steve Shepard, and the professor himself, Nate Carter. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. Excited about this one. Yeah. These movies are really close. I think I wonder if they titled them this, so similarly for us. It, it worked I'm, so perfectly. Almost certainly. I think they I, were thinking about it. I would be shocked if it was any different, to be honest. Yeah, I would be too. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, we'll we'll just dive right in. So, like I said, we'll be going. Um, the most recent one was Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, uh, which came out in 2015, and then Ridley Scott's Body of Lies came out a few years before that in 2008. But both of these. Um, as you would imagine, for most of the movies, really, of directors of, uh, of, these, of this caliber that we're talking about with these two, just stacked casts, right? Just really good cast throughout. I mean, in, in Bridge of Spies, we got, obviously, Tom Hanks, Mark Rylance, who won an Oscar for the freaking movie. Um, Amy Ryan is in there. And then we've got uh, Body of Lies, Leonardo DiCaprio, Russell Crowe, like, just really good all around. Fucking Mark Strong was actually surprised. I didn't even know he was in that body of lies. And then here he is. Uh, so anyway, as we typically do, we, we like to give some sort of little fun tidbits on the background or some fun things about this that our, our historian Steve has decided to or has uh, dug into and found out. So what give us some interesting things about these movies, Steve. So with the last few movies, we haven't really... Um gone over kind of the basics, <clears throat> excuse me, of the plot synopsis, synopses, or, you know, anything else, because they've been such big movies that everybody knows. Um, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've hopefully seen these movies. Uh, so I won't bore you with a detailed plot synopsis, but as a reminder, Bridge of Spies is uh, a New York lawyer, defends an accused Soviet spy. Um, it doesn't go well, but he does his job. Uh, the relationship winds up bearing fruit later though, because he manages to negotiate the exchange of this spy for, um, Francis Gary powers, a downed U2 spy plane pilot that the Soviets had. So, uh, that's two hours of, uh, really good filmmaking boiled down to one sentence, two sentences. Um, but that's where we're at. The production history of this movie is pretty interesting. I had no idea that is written by a guy named Matt Carmen Charman. I hope I'm not butchering that. He's a British playwright. Um, it was also punched up the, uh, they got writing credits for it 
the Coen brothers. Did you guys know that? That's like, once I saw it on the credits, I think I remembered it. <laughs> yeah. Because I remember thinking of how weird it was at the time when the movie came out. But uh, I had forgotten, and I was like, oh, my God, that's totally weird. I had, no I had the exact same experience that, like, I remembered. I'd forgotten it, but I remembered watching it. I saw the movie in theaters, and I remember seeing that and being like, oh, like, <laughs> there they are. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, the play- British playwright, this, I think this is the only movie he's done a screenplay for. Um, he he basically said, he admitted, he's like, these guys they didn't save his screenplay. He was proud of what he did, but he said that they really punched it up and made it, made it what it was, uh, especially towards the tail end. They did a lot of the negotiation stuff. Um, so that was, that's awesome. Uh, the director of photography, the cinematographer is Janusz Kominski. I'm sure I'm totally butchering that. I'm sorry, Mr. Kominski, but he's a longtime collaborator with Steven Spielberg. Uh, he won Oscars for Schindler's list, saving private Ryan. He did Amistad war horse, Lincoln West side story. So, he knows Mr. Spielberg very well. He's probably one of the most undersung cinematographers of our lifetime. All he has honesty. to be, right? Because I mean, like, and we'll talk about this a lot with the Saving Private Ryan episode. But that's like, I mean, that has that invented an entire new genre of cinematography that like is still used today, and I has crossed over even into video games and all kinds of things. Yeah, I think he was on uh, Minority Report too. He uh, might have been. I didn't list all of them. I just yeah, yeah, kind of picked and choose. And, but and yeah, choose. that very that very sort of famous now famous kind of almost like fuzzy style that he has. Yeah. I like to call it. It's yeah. But yeah. He's, like, he's very uh, underrated. No doubt about that. Um, I, I mean, I'll admit when I was looking at the list of it, I'm like, Oh my God, he did all these anyway. Um, so some other, uh, some other fun stuff. The, the prisoner exchange scene on the bridge, the bridge of spies, the titular bridge of spies uh, was filmed actually on the actual bridge. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. Angela Merkel and Bill Clinton, for some reason, were there when they, when they filmed that. Um, anyway, fun stuff. Uh, it made 72 million domestic and 165 worldwide and altogether uh, against a $40 million budget, which is pretty dang good. And critics pretty much loved it. It's still today sitting at a 91% Rotten Tomatoes score. Um, there's one particular critic said something that I want to come back to later uh, <clears throat> about uh, how Spielberg basically just is so great at, um, he's such a good craftsman at making movies. And th- I think that's the word that I've been looking for when we've been talking about Steven Spielberg for these episodes so far. But anyway, I'll come back to this quote later that I have in mind. Uh, the movie was nominated for six Oscars and won one of them for supporting actor Mark, Mark Rylance. Uh, was nominated for nine BAFTAs, and Mark Rylance won that as well, a supporting actor. So uh, that's Bridge of Spies, Body of Lies. It's Contenda. Uh, if you haven't seen this one, it stars, as Jeff noted, Leonardo DiCaprio is a CIA field agent. It's the war on terror, uh, and he is basically butting heads with his handler slash guy in the chair for people that have watched the Marvel Spider-Man movies. Um who's played by Russell Crowe back in America, who's essentially never on the ground. He's always thousands of miles away orchestrating things via phone. Um, They're hunting a a real bad guy, a real bad terrorist, as you can imagine, named Al-Salim, and shenanigans ensue. Uh, Let's see. This was based on a book that was uh, originally called Penetration. I don't remember this coming out. It was written by David Ignatius, who's a Washington Post journalist, and so he covered this stuff in real life. 
and he wrote a novel and um it wound up uh people liked it enough that they talked talked a couple folks into making a screenplay um DiCaprio he wanted to do you know an old school spy movie so he signed on Russell Crowe signed on after him um he specifically committed after the the screenplay was punched up by the guy that wrote American Gangster which as you know um Russell Crowe starred in as well also directed by Ridley Scott he gained 63 pounds uh which you can definitely tell when he's on screen <laughs> Um, I think my first note when watching was, wow, schlubby Russell, Russell Crowe, Russell Crowe. Um, but that's fun. Um, the director of photography, this was, I thought, very interesting. This is the first, as far as I can tell, only actual DP credit for Alexander Witt, but he, his resume is stacked as a second unit director. He did Speed, Speed 2, The Postman, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, The Born Identity, Pirates of the Caribbean, Skyfall, Casino Royale, Avengers Infinity War. He's doing second unit directing on all those. Um, so, I mean, I guess he knows his he knows his niche and he sticks in it, but uh, I guess he wanted to experiment and see if he could be a full-blown cinematographer for a whole movie on this one. So, uh, um, just, as a, just as a side note, Nate, maybe you could be better at describing this, but... As far as what a second unit director actually does, like my understanding is that when you see like big crowd shots and stuff like that, and you see like lots of close-ups of characters, you know, packing a briefcase or stuff, stuff that the real director, quote unquote, <laughs> doesn't doesn't want to have to waste time shooting these weird shots. That's what the second unit guy does. Is that accurate? That is roughly accurate. Yeah. So uh, things there's like basically in a major Hollywood production, there's sort of two different productions going on at the same time. There is the movie where the main director is primarily working with actors who, you know, if you're they're like an A-list actor, they're not going to be on set for the insert shot of the guy folding a piece of paper. Um, a, a second unit is going to do that, usually in an entirely different location, and they usually get big establishing shots or really, really small what we call insert shots of like what I just described, of like somebody opening a piece of paper or sticking a key into a door or something like that. Uh, however, a lot of directors don't use uh, second units at all. Uh, Christopher Nolan, on a lot of his movies, he oversees every single shot. Uh, David that tracks. David Fincher, who uh, has a reputation of being very particular, and he actually is very methodical with his inserts. Uh, he oversees a lot of those shots, um, particularly in Zodiac, my... Um, probably my favorite movie of all time. So uh, Steven Soderbergh also, he he's typically actually the camera operator, and he not only, so he's a cinematographer, camera operator, and then he doesn't use a second unit. He really oversees every single movie is kind of his baby, and he really oversees every single shot. So it's not a requirement, but on a lot of big Hollywood productions, that's exactly what a second unit is, yes. Yeah, thank you guys for that, because um, that's, that's nice to actually hear it laid out. Um, you can read the titles all you want, but that's that's very good background. Um, some other questions for our film experts, some things that I, I learned. Again, sources on all these. I, I've listed the books at the very beginning. We can put them in the show notes again, but I'm also hitting Wikipedia and checking the sources. Um, and actually, I was funnily enough, some of the sources link back to the books that I'm holding in my hand when I'm doing it, so that's kind of fun. But uh, anyway, um, so Nate, they apparently Ridley Scott often uses a lens filter but they specifically used no lens filters for this. Um, what does that mean? I mean, I, as a non-technician, I get the general idea, but what is that? What is he going for with that? Any idea? 
I, for this particular movie, to be completely honest with you, don't really know what he would be going for. So a filter would be something that's going to add, that a cinematographer would use to add some kind of color colorization to hmm. the film strip. That's like gonna Minority Report some... had like had a blue filter, right? Blue, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. And actually now a lot of them are done, like in digital cinematography, a lot of those filters are applied in post-production. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but there are still obviously a lot of filmmakers that shoot on film and they're applying certain kinds of filters. Uh, the cinematographers and the camera operators are applying a filter. Um, so for this one, my guess would just be, particularly when they're, you know, on location in the streets in the Middle East, maybe he's just going for some kind of a realism. Yeah. But it's funny because of what we're thinking of as the realism is often actually applied through a filter right. to give us like the notion of realism. Every um, scene in Mexico is like yellow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and they, they actually like talk about uh, that traffic. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Countries and scenarios actually have colors. So like yeah. sandy areas, what we think of. So like the Middle East or uh, like uh, Mexico or really anywhere in South America almost has like a yellow tint because mm-hmm. we just think of it as being like sort of sandy. Um, tropical places have more of like a green tint to them. Futurism, as we talked about with Minority Report, has more of like a bluish or almost like a kind of an off-white tint to it yeah. to give it the technology more of a sparkle. So, yeah, times and places have uh, have a certain color that we associate with those things that, you know, it, it doesn't actually have that color, but our perception of it yeah. through film and through the language of film is actually coming to be associated with that color, whether and it's subconscious whether people know it or not. Yeah, I guess you're probably right. He probably just wanted to try to present it in all its, its, all its grittiness. Because uh, filmed, they filmed on location, and uh, they tried to actually film in Dubai, um, but the, UA, the UAE government was like, no, thank you, based on the nature of the movie. Um, so they wound up going shooting, <clears throat> shooting a lot in Morocco, which is where they shot a lot of Gladiator stuff, too. So they were very familiar with where they were shooting, um, amongst other places in the Middle East. Uh, and then another interesting thing is... Um, we've talked a lot about Ridley Scott's use of light, especially going all the way back to the duelists and using natural light and all that, you know, inspired by Barry Lyndon. They did that a lot in this movie too. Um, specifically the, the kind of climactic torture scene, the only light in there are those two torches. Um, they did use bounce cards, which I'll let Nate explain as the professor. But um, other than that, there was no other lighting. So that's, very, very interesting. Um, it shows how much he really, really likes doing that to kind of give that, that real gritty, realistic fleet, uh, feel. Um, it won. I wasn't going to even list any awards, but it the two awards that it won are so silly that I wanted to, uh, to list them. And as far as I could tell, it wasn't really even nominated for much. But the London Films Critics Society gave Mark Strong the award for British Supporting Actor. So I guess that's his own category for the London film critics. Um, and then they're playing a character who was in fact, not British. We got to talk way. about that, by the way. Um, the week, one of the Wikipedia like links at the bottom of the page is Brownface. Is Brownface. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and I even, I even, and this is maybe just kind of day and age. Cause it's fi- even just 15 years later, I looked up and I was like, he's not, oh, I'm the same like, way. I think, I think he's British. Like, I, I don't Oscar know if he Isaac has, too. like, like Arab ancestry, and I don't think he does. I think he just kind of was yeah, doing I, that with an accent. I knew yes. he was British, but I was like, maybe there is something in there in his history that 
And yeah, with Oscar Isaac too, I was like, I'm pretty sure he's like Spanish and German. Like, his yeah, whole... I was like, maybe he's like Lebanese or something. I don't know, but yeah, yeah I mean, it's just. Uh... Right, but it, it definitely Mark Strong for sure was a little felt. Yeah, that was yeah in 2023. But yeah, but we'll we'll get there. Um, and then the Satellite Awards, the film that all these people spent, you know, all this time and money slaving away making this cinematic creation. Uh, the movie won an award for the Guns N' Roses song that played <laughs> for the final credits, uh, which I'm sure is exactly what all these people wanted to get an award for. Nailed um, it. Yeah. So that's that's your history lesson on these movies. Um, did we want to talk about, you know, had any of us seen these before? That's the next thing on on my outline. I, I, I had not movies, seen yeah. either of these movies before. Had you guys seen them? I saw Bridge of Spies when it came out in theaters, and then I had never seen Body of Lies, and I actually watched it first time a couple of days ago. I saw Body of Lies when it came out. Not, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but it was probably right after on video. Um, and I saw Bridge of Spies, same same scenario, basically. Not in theaters, but very soon after it came out. So I, this was a rewatch on both of them for me. When I when I first pulled up Body of Lies, I ha- I realized I had thought I seen it. I think I even said last week that I had seen that one, but I was actually thinking of Proof of Life, which oh, was another right. Russell Crowe yeah. movie. Got those mixed up somehow. Lies, so life, body. Lies. Right yeah, I mean, lies myself. I was I lied by by saying I had seen that. If I I can't remember if I actually did it the episode, but Russell Crowe does have. To the point that he's almost typecast, he has a lot of movies that are sort of those uh, kind of like state of play, like the, these kind of movies that deal sort one. of with espionage, but not quite espionage, like Washington Insider kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Um, he he kind of gets typecast in that role. I'm trying to think. State of play is the one that immediately comes to mind. I'll I'll have to look up some others and think about um, what they are. Um, uh, what was he, he has that, a few... Which movie is State of Play? Which one is that? Uh, State of Play is the one about the politician. It's got Ben Affleck in it. Um, looking what, up his film. What role does now. Russell Crowe play? He is. God, it's been so long since I've seen. He's also in the. the he's he's in. Uh, he's in the Insider as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because uh, I was which... thinking there was one movie where he was like a reporter with Rachel McAdams, and that, I think that was State of Play. Was that State, State of Play? Of play. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so, okay, I'm thinking, I'm with you. I got you. Yeah, and then I think um, Insider, he is like a... He's Jeffrey Wigan, one of the... Yes, he's the whistleblower. Yeah, uh, the, for the... Yeah, the tobacco um, thing. Tobacco, yeah, yep. big tobacco. Yeah, that was so a it's just like, role for him. They're not all... I, like, like, those aren't related. There's just sort of a Washington, D.C., socio-political, behind-the-scenes kind of thing that he's negotiating. Yeah. This, this is obviously red more tape, like... tape, bureaucracy, machination. Exactly. And, and this yeah. is more... And, like, here he's, like, literally the embodiment of right. that person. Like, if, like, government oversight was a was a human being, like, that's who he is, <laughs> like, in a military context in this movie. A corrupt government. Uh, right. Government. Yeah, like, if you, if you would have been told... If you would have found out Body of Lies is... I guess... I don't know if it's... It's... You said it was written or based off a book written by someone who had covered this stuff, but yeah, if 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 you had been said, okay, this is like like Bridge of uh, Spies, like this is an actual real story that happened, Russell Crowe would have been one at, one character that was an amalgamation of like fifteen people because the amount <laughs> of stuff that he did, the, the unilateral power that he had, yeah. I don't think I'm not an expert, but I have done a decent amount of reading on the CIA and how it works, and I don't think someone yeah, what is his job like title that exists. So what, what yeah, is his I, role? I don't know. 
guy in the chair, basically. <laughs> I, think that's the, I think that's the one, you know, appointed by the president. So, uh, but do you guys want to, you want to dive into to, um, Body of Lies first, Bridge of Spies, BOS, BOL? We've consistently been doing Spielberg first, but it kind of feels backwards in this one since it came chronologically later. Uh, but it takes I, place I, chronologically before. Sold. I'm sold. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So, um, Bridge of Spies. So I hadn't I hadn't seen this one. This was one of the ones. Okay. Let's do, we'll do a side note here, if you will. See if you guys agree with me on this with Spielberg. I, I mean, I'm technically the Spielberg guy, right? I love Steven Spielberg. That that is unequivocally without doubt but i would say maybe the last 10 maybe even 15 years of spielberg's career um it it, there there's a lot of even though the movies might not necessarily be the same there's almost like a sameness feeling to them and we we kind of even touched on this uh nate when you were talking about we were talking about the post. We had mentioned mentioned that, and and you were like, "How oh, it's kind of this Oscar Beatty premise, right?" And it almost feels like every movie that he does is that way. And it's part of it is because Spielberg himself is Oscar bait, right? Like he's gonna if he's attached, everyone's like, "Oh my god, that's gonna be a movie that gets nominated for Best Picture, right?" And unless it's something that's truly just you know Ready Player One, nobody everybody knew that wasn't gonna. Best picture, but like, oh my God, the post, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, you know, and then, um, uh, the Fablemans, you know, like uh, that just came out last year, and and that stacked cast, and it's Spielberg about his own life, you know. Of course, it's going to be this Academy darling. I would have got eleven nominations or whatever it got. So, uh, there's the, the, year I, bef- the, the year before it was West Side Story. Oh yeah, exactly. I uh, forgot. I knew I was forgetting one. Yeah, and I I do think it's interesting. I. The way that I've really noticed this, and it's interesting that I was praising Kaminsky and I, uh, the cinematographer, uh, who is fantastic. He has shot, he has been behind the camera of like every Spielberg movie since like 1997, and he's done all these. And I do see a little bit of how this Bridge of Spies definitely comes in this era where it does feel like a lot of Spielberg movies. They sort of look and feel the same. Yeah, they're about is. different stories. They're about different things. Ready Player One is maybe the only minor outlier there, but then the rest of them, there's just there's a little bit of a sameness to it that it's it's kind of hard to shake a little bit. You're One. exactly right. I kept thinking this looks like the scenes in uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull when they're back at like the college. Because, you know, it's in the 50s. And I'm like, this it could literally be taken from the same movie. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a, this is like near the tail end of a 15-year run where he was in, like Tom Hanks was in five of his movies, right? All in this 15-year period. You know, we, Catch Me If You Can. And you had, and, um, or I guess it's a little bit, I forgot about Saving Private Ryan. It's a little bit further back. So, so call it 20 years. But, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan and, and Catch Me If You Can all the way up to you know, in kind of ending in the post, maybe they'll they'll collaborate again, probably. But um, it just, yeah, it was like because I I love Steven Spielberg, so you attach his name to it, I'm instantly going to want to see it on some level. But then the movie came out, I remember, and it was like Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, like, oh, this sounds great. You know, Bridge of Spies, it sounds cool. And then you you just as a title, and then you see it's like it is Steven Spielberg. It is that same look. 
It is Tom Hanks again. It's another, it's not World War II, you know, but it's Cold War. It's fallout from World War II, essentially, right? It's still wartime, that war feeling. It's like, you know, like, I just watched War Horse, man. You're going to make me go through this again? <laughs> you know, even the War Horse is nothing like this, but it just, that's the kind of feeling that, because War Horse, I think, was the last time that I was, like, super jazzed up about a Spielberg um, movie, and I just rushed to the theater and saw it on opening weekend. And that movie was just okay. And so I was like, you know, is this just going to be, is he kind of on the the denouement of his career now, where he's just, you know, it's going to get the praise, it's going to be a good movie. Like, I really liked Bridge of Spies, it was really good. But in terms of seeing it in the theater and just that being compelled to see it like I was maybe 15 years ago for every Spielberg movie that came out, yeah. you know? Like, the terminal even right like i saw that opening weekend i was like yes let's get in there you know <laughs> and it's like i mean it was fine but it's i think it that kinda was had the that first of these frankly it it's it come you know came 10 years early but to me that was the first of these where it, the spielberg expectations fell short you know he came off that awesome run that you always talk about you know mid to late 90s mm-hmm. and because catch me if you can was before terminal right yeah, 2002. Just, and yeah, Terminal just, was yeah. 2004. So I think they were back to back in terms of his movies that that he released. So whichever one came later, I guess. Was Catch me Terminal. if I can. Is you know we're going to cover it, but uh, you know to me it wasn't a disappointment. Whereas Terminal, I felt kind of like was. And I think you're right. I mean, every movie after that pretty much has kind of. They're not a disappointment commercially or even necessarily critically, but yeah, it's they don't hit those high. They're not Jurassic Park. They're not 90, Jaws. They're not Saving Private Ryan. Ninety-nine percent of directors, any director that's ever existed, would would see the Terminal or War Horse and be like, "This is the pinnacle of my career," you know. But you're Steven Spielberg, and it's just right. another movie. It's suffering from his own success. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't remember where I've heard this, but idea of like what makes an artist exciting is their best work is still in front of them. When you watch a movie or you listen to a music album or whatever it is, their best work is still in front of them. And this string of movies really makes me think that I think Spielberg will continue to make good movies, but I'm not sure that his best work is still in front of him. And he may even admit that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, there was... It was exciting when there was Jurassic Park and Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. I kind of feel like, as I'm literally looking at his filmography right now, Minority Report was maybe the last movie that really, truly did something different that was exciting. I think War of the Worlds, just because of the nature of what it was, was an exciting film to see in theaters. That's true. But, but even it's got I'm, a little bit of this... this now, it I will, does. I will disagree on War of the Worlds, because I think that movie's phenomenal. But... It, that's the that's the cutoff for me. So just just maybe we're, we're but even War of the Worlds. So okay, even if we agree War of the Worlds, you know that's two thousand five. So we're going right. back. Al- we're going back almost, almost twenty. 20 years. And again, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a. Re- I. I mean, I for one love Bridge of Spies. I actually do think it is probably in this run of the last ten years. It's probably my favorite movie in that period of of Spielberg's. Um, and I think he's made a lot of good movies. You know. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned War Horse. There's some moments in War Horse that I still remember that I thought were really, really good. I thought the movie was okay, but he can really do some incredible things with visuals. I think of the scene 
uh, before they're about to charge. You'll probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Or they are about to charge into the camp, and you see the horses and the really, really tall grass, and then all the men mount their horse and get up on top of the horse, and they come mm-hmm. out of the grass, and they run through the grass. Uh, really incredible visuals. He has the ability to do that, uh, at, seemingly at will, whenever he wants to. Uh, I just think that there's a sameness, and it's kind of almost what I would describe as kind of a glossiness. It's just wrapped so nicely in this package, and you know what you're going to get, and it's not going to surprise you, but you know exactly what you're going to get. You know the quality of the movie that you're going to get, and it's good. It's a good quality movie. There's just a sameness and a glossiness to it that's beginning to become a little bit repetitive. And I think this movie, while great, is also symbolic of that a little bit. Absolutely. And I think you kind of nailed that perfectly for what I was trying to trying to say. And I I, I, I do agree that the idea of, you know, best uh, what's exciting about an artist is if their best uh, best work is in front of them. And and yeah, I agree. I don't know if I see that from Spielberg now. And that's, you know, again, his movie. It's like going to a restaurant, right? And, oh, there's a special for the day, but damn, every time I come here, I have the steak and it's perfectly cooked and it's so good. Okay. That special might be better, you know, there's, oh, it, look, it's, it's octopus in its own ink. I've had that before and it's a fantastic <laughs> dish, but, um, but like, you know, that sounds weird. I don't know. That could be really bad, but I know the steak is good. I'm going to get the steak, you know, and that's, that's your Spielberg right now. And it really, I think you, you nailed it when you say it ties into this, this week, especially because whether one movie is better or not than the other, I think it's very clear from these two movies that um, Ridley Scott is certainly, and as we've talked about this all season to this point so far, he is reaching much further than Spielberg is. Whether he actually can grasp that brass ring or not in terms of, of Body of Lies, you know, we'll discuss when we get to that movie, but but just like we've talked about with you know the Playing God Week and, and that stuff too, I think it's very... I think you, you you nailed it perfectly, Nate. I just it, I do think this really encapsulates where you know Spielberg knows his lane; he's going to stick there. But you know, Ridley Scott's swinging for the fences. And it's interesting to see how other artists deal with this. Uh, you know, he made a lot of headlines a couple of years ago. But Quentin Tarantino has said he's going to make one more movie, and that's it, because he doesn't want to get to that point in his career. He doesn't want to, he wants to make all of his movies fantastic, which I, he has a very solid body of work. A lot of them, I think, are. I think most people would agree that almost all of his movies hold up to a very high quality, and he doesn't ever want to get to this point. When you hear Steven Spielberg talk about filmmaking, he talks about it literally almost like a drug addiction, that he has to make movies, he comes upon a story, and he feels like he literally has to make it and has to keep doing this. He's already made far, far, far more movies than Quentin Tarantino will ever make, and he's just going to keep doing it. Well, you, and so just just this past couple, I think it was last week, there was a quote from Martin Scorsese because they're having a Killers of the Flower Moon comes out this year, and he's eighty years old. He in his quote, he literally said, "I'm eighty years old. There's so many stories I want to tell, and time is running out." And I remember what, like when I when I read that quote when when. In whatever interview he did, it was like the first thing I read that morning, and I was like, "Oh, you know, in case I wanted some existential dread with my coffee." But <laughs> it was, but yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of ways what you're talking about of how you how they deal with it. It's 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 it is interesting to see. And how you see this in every medium. I mean, you see this in like the two artists 
who are contemporaries that I kind of think of is like, look at like someone like the musician Billy Joel versus the musician Prince. And Steve knows if there's my first Prince plug because I'm a huge Prince like scholar. Like Billy Joel just like made twelve albums believe, and then he, Sorry, I can't believe you lasted all the way until episode seven. I know. It's seven crazy. Episodes. <laughs> but like Billy Joel made twelve albums and he was done. And he just said, I'm done. I think I've said what I need to say. Whereas Prince, when he talked about it, it's that same quality of like he always felt like he was running out of time and he couldn't control it. It was literally like an addiction. He had to make music and he just made music up until the day he died. And you still felt like, because he died so suddenly, you still felt like he ran out of time. And it's just different to see how different artists do that. And Spielberg is definitely someone who's just like, I have to keep making movies. I'm going to keep doing this, and as long as my my body and my mind will allow me to do it. It's interesting to me, too. Um, I agree absolutely with everything you guys have said. I do wonder if he's starting to question that himself, because as far as I can tell, um, I, I was curious what his next film is. And the last thing I saw was in February of this year, 2013, 2023. Good Lord. Uh, he, uh, he does not know what his next film is going to be. And I think this is like the first time in maybe ever that that's been the case. So maybe time is finally kind of, well, and it's interesting that his last movie was the Fablemans, the Fablemans right? Kind of, which is this thing about his life, and yeah. you do kind of wonder if he finally got up to a place where he was comfortable telling that story. Yeah. I can't remember what the exact details were, but he had mentioned he didn't want to make it if his parent, like there were aspects of it, he didn't want his parents to see. He needed to like air this laundry, but he didn't really want his parents to see it. Um, and I just. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because I, I didn't know that. I had not heard that, that he doesn't really know what movie he wants to make next. It's really fascinating. The last one that he did make was The Fablemans, which is uh, right? far and away his most personal – like it's literally just his life. The Fablemans are the Spielbergs. It's his life with certain embellishments, but it's basically his childhood. And it's, it's again, the perfect contrast to this too because Ridley Scott has made more movies in the last 10 years than he did the previous 20, I think. That's me off the top of my head. I don't know if that's actually true, but he definitely has made – movies at a higher clip recently than he did um, at any point in his career, I think. And he's got like five projects in the hopper right now. He's 85. He's 10 years older than Spielberg. And he's, he's got the Napoleon movie that's coming out this year. He's producing a alien uh, TV series. He's producing another alien movie that's being directed by Fidi Alvarez. Um, and I think he's got another movie that's in pre-production as well. So he's, he's just, He's in that category of I, I can't stop, and I will be doing this until I die, and it's so that's really interesting too. That, that as Spielberg's kind of slowing down, you know, Ridley Scott, and it's almost felt that way because he's been a legend, but up until say the mid two thousands, you know, it was kind of more of an event for a Ridley Scott movie because it didn't seem like there were that many that were out. He was more of a more in a producer role, I think, you know, and because he. Maybe it felt a little different because I know his brother, Tony Scott, was directing movies too, so I, I know they were worked together. Um, but I think it was, you know, these last 10 years or so, I mean, he's really, because he had um, Prometheus and then he had The Counselor and then he had Alien Covenant. It's almost like every year we get one. I mean, he had The Last Duel. He had, uh, I can't think of them all, of course, but anyway, I just think that's an I'll interesting. Look at it right now. In the last 10 years, he's released eight movies. Yeah, um, whereas... if you include Napoleon this year, so that's that's a pretty pretty good clip. 
Yeah, whereas, I mean, you look at, let's see, the 90s, one, two, three, seven. I guess he had seven movies in the 90s, so maybe it is a normal clip for him. But are those all? Oh, no, wait, one of those was just a, was a, two of those were just ads. So, yeah, five movies. Three of them were ads, four movies in the 90s. You know, so, so it's, uh, but that's 90s. interesting. But anyway, that's, that's kind of an aside. I was just kind of thinking that um, as I, as I was watching the movie, because I, like you, Nate, I really like Bridge of Spies. Like when it was, when it was all said and done, I told my wife the next morning, I was like, I watched Bridge of Spies. I started really liked it. She's a lawyer. Um, just like, uh, you know, you are by trade, Steve. So, it, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, you, it says Bridge of Spies, but it's really about a lawyer and the legal process. Yeah, it's, we kind of screwed up this week. <laughs> it was supposed to be Spy v. Spy, and really it was lawyer movie versus terrorism movie. But uh, there were definitely some crossovers. Um, I'm glad you brought up the lawyer thing. I I forgot. I don't know if I just was in a different headspace when I saw this the first time. I was a practicing attorney at that time, and my uh, I was much more jaded about many things. Um, cause that's a rough way to make a living. Um, but now having not been practicing longer than I practiced, which is crazy. Um, I, I look back and I, I see a lot more of the, uh, the positive things and I can think about the practice of law and the idea of America, this, you know, huge, uh, shining example of what we should be. I can think of it through a much more um, idealistic lens. And this movie like hit me in a lot of those scenes. I, way too often lawyers are portrayed as criminals and scumbags and crooks and the counselor, basically. Um, when, you know, and I'm not going to lie, there are lawyers that are like that. But it is also a profession that you go into because you do believe in these words that are on a piece of paper that we choose. And that's what makes us Americans. Um, like there's a bit in the movie uh, where he's taught, where Donovan Tom Hanks character is talking to the CIA agent who's like, yeah, yeah. Don't give me that whole fourth amendment crap. You know, we need to know what this, this spy is telling us. We're in a battle with a mortal enemy against America. And Tom Hanks is like, you know, what's your last name? And he, he says, I can't remember what it is now, but it's a German name. And, uh, he says, yeah, and I'm Irish, but what makes us American? And he says, you know, it's the constitution, basically these words that we all agree will bind us and we're all equal because of it. Uh, and to me, it's just such an, it, the idea of America is what keeps me going. Obviously we were founded, uh, with, some certain contradictions at our heart um, already, you know, baked in and we have clearly not lived up to the promise of what, what it means, uh, you know, to truly say we're, we're all equal and, you know, everything that we, we say is American, but um, the idea of it is what keeps me going. And this movie just like one, two punched me right there in the heart with that. Uh, so I was, I was very proud of Tom Hanks as I watched this movie, well, seeing him stand up for what he believed in and, I had a quote from that scene that I wrote down where it was, you know, quote, following the rule book makes us American, end quote, right? Yes, where, that's, that's um, the big line. And my sub note to that was that Spielberg really believes in the American ideal, and that's present mm -hmm. in almost all his movies. Yes. You know, it's a very, but it's not a, it doesn't mean that, that these American ideals and, and certain things are not above reproach because he does sort of challenge no some of those things. And, um, 
But I, I thought it was interesting, though, specifically in that scene that I wrote down that this is maybe some of the most forceful I've seen Tom Hanks in any role. I, I haven't seen every movie that he's been in. But just off the top of my head, you know, Tom Hanks is, you know, he's America's dad, right? I mean, that's that's the whole deal. But he was, uh, he wasn't like some jerk lawyer, but but he was someone who very steadfastly believed and was like, I'm not going to put up with your shit. CIA guy who's coming here trying to get me to to break this constitutional amendment just so you can have your info you know I, I and and that was I thought that was interesting yeah I actually absolutely. think that this movie this is maybe my hot take for the week I think that uh Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance in this movie I think it's one of and we haven't talked a lot I mean we've talked a little bit about it but we haven't talked a lot about the the performance of actors and because we've been so focused on the filmmakers, I think my hot take for this week is that this is maybe one of my favorite. Both of those performances are two of my favorite acting performances in any Spielberg movie. And it's some of the best that he has ever directed actors. Um, the scenes between Hanks and Rye Lance are just perfect. Oh, yeah. And the way the screenplay is written. And again, we talk about it with, you know, I mentioned this in episode one. We talk about the patience in those scenes and the pauses how that's directed and how that's acted and the craft involved in that, I think is really, really great. I think it's just captive. The acting in the movie is captivating and we haven't really talked a lot about the acting per se with these filmmakers. So it's, it's really funny you bring that up. You talk about Mark Rylance. So he won the Oscar for that. I remember at the time I had not seen the movie in the theater and I hadn't even seen it by the time Oscar season rolled around. And I was, I was like, not super mad, but I was like, man, I can't believe Mark Rylance won because this category for supporting actor that year was absolutely stacked, okay? So you had Christian Bale from The Big Short, Tom Hardy from The Revenant, who was freaking awesome in that movie, Mark Ruffalo from Spotlight, who, you know, if he's not going to win an Oscar for that movie, that ended up winning Best Picture that year. When is he, I mean, when is he going to do it? And then Sylvester Stallone for Creed, who I actually thought should have won because he had the best performance. But of course, the only one I hadn't seen was Bridge of Spies, and now I have seen that, and I'm like, well, damn. I guess I understand why he won, because yeah, he really was phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, he was. It goes without saying, since he won the Oscar for it. Well, I mean, I guess it's debatable, but I think this is the best thing he's ever done, at least that I've seen. He just so perfectly inhabits that character. Yeah, and <laughs> as a, as a kind of a side note, with a. Uh, Rylance's character, and we can kind of, kind of this kind of definitely contrasts with Body of Lies a little bit. But you've got the because uh, we we wanted to talk about spy tropes, right, and how the movies yeah. handled differently. Well, I think there's two kinds of spies, right? There's um, the fastidious one, right, comes into a room like only walks in right angles, puts the hat down in the same place every time, opens the book to the perfect page, you know. And then there's the schlub guy who just doesn't care just moving from house to house wearing ratty ass clothes and does you know that essentially the Leonardo DiCaprio character from <laughs> uh, Body of Lies so it's really kind of interesting that there's that that trope which you see play out in spy movies was was such a contrast in these two because I even wrote that I was like it's like where are all the um you know it's like the, the spies are always fastidious in these movies, right? Because that opening scene with Rylance where he, he comes and he's doing the painting and he, every, yeah. you know, he puts the, the everything down perfectly and all that. I thought that was funny. So talking the spy tropes, have you guys read John Le Carre novels? 
or is that how it's pronounced yeah i was i was I had to look it up the care i've yeah, read it my whole life okay. well, you know not my whole life but yeah and f- today i was like all right if i'm gonna be saying it, i need to know for sure um yeah it's john le Carre. gotcha um, no i have not so i've read spy that came in from the cold and tinker taylor soldier spy and oh gosh that that one's in the the smiley series if you've seen the movie tinker taylor soldier spy the the character that um gary oldman Thank you. <laughs> plays is George Smiley, so he's it's kind of a series, kind of about him. But anyway, uh, I read the second book of that, and they're all very much this, this like you're saying, prim and proper, kind of buttoned up British. Uh, I mean, those books are about British spies, um, it, it, very kind of buttoned up and Cold War, very Cold War spyish. Whereas Body of Lies is very much in the kind of Robert Ludlum, Tom Clancy. It's, it's a new world, you know. Clive Cussler, doesn't he watch, doesn't he write spy novels? I think so. I've never read one. <laughs> but, you know, even though, despite Tom Clancy writing stuff in the Cold War, you know, a big part of it, but uh, it, it's it's very much, it's a new world, you know. It's not the 50s anymore. This is, these spies get their hands dirty, and and they, uh, it's a lot of action. Um, something that I wrote down was in these John le Carre older kind of spy novels and movies. The, the action sets up the, uh, the talking, so to speak, like the talking and the dialogue are where, where things really occur. And that's what you're there for. Um, whereas in the, this other kind of schools, new school, I guess, of spy movies, the talking is incidental to the action, you know, sure they, they have quips and they'll, they'll have a showdown where they say something to each other, but it's about kinetic energy. It's about movement. It's about resolving things with force. Um, anyway, I thought that was one of the biggest contrasts between the two, but I think you're really onto something about the two different types of spies. I think that also the way that I contrasted both of these movies was, and we can kind of start to like move into body of lies a little, I guess a little bit with this comment, but Bridge of Spies seemed to be, even though it's telling a very specific story about a specific time and place, there's kind of a timelessness to it. Body of Lies could have only been made in 2008. It is very affixed to its time and place. It had to be post 9-11, but pre-us uh, getting Osama bin Laden. There's just this very, very specific way and specific audience that that movie is directing itself to. And I don't pick that up as much with Bridge of Spies. I think that you could probably, again, it's telling a specific story, but you can kind of watch it and relate to it in a lot of ways. Well, like the talk, the you know, the whole speech about the rule book. I think there's different ways that Americans at any time can look at that and understand that. Uh, Body of Lies is so much. It is just so post 9/11 in its thinking yeah. and what it's trying to communicate, and it really feels like it came out in 2008. It would oh, almost be weird. Even just 15 years later, it would be weird if that movie came out this yeah. year. It would be like, yes. it seems kind of more like a post-9-11 thing. I'm not sure what they're <laughs> trying to communicate now, but well, anyway. It's interesting, too, because I I think part of what's at play there with, with is this the power dynamics between the, you know, quote-unquote players in the game, right? Like Cold War era, you've got America, you've got England, you've got Russia, right? And Russia essentially invented espionage, right? They, you know, Kate, <clears throat> excuse me, K- 
KGB. They, they, they've, and then the Russians trained the British, and then the British trained the Americans. And it was, you know, there's, they're all kind of doing espionage the same way, and they're all these national powers that are on the sort of national stage. That's actually kind of a, a, a subplot of the movie. The, the second person that, that Tom Hanks's Donovan character is actually able to um, negotiate over in the exchange is just a student who was over in East Germany. Cause there's like this whole thing with East and West Germany going on um, where they're actually building the wall um, between East and West Germany and the East Germans want a seat at the table. They want to be seen in this national global stage like the U.S. is, like Russia is, like England is, and they recognize that they're these powers, right? Whereas you look at Body of Lies and it's America versus just these Middle Eastern countries, you know, Jordan's involved, Iraq is involved, Iran's involved. There's there's all these countries where the power dynamic between the countries themselves is vastly different. And it's this, it makes it really weird. It's almost like um, trying to compare the Vietnam War or even the um, the American Revolution, right, with different wars because the the Vietnamese War, the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese fought a completely different style than this jungle warfare, you know, that, that just America, Russia, whoever was, was trying to get at any point into these countries was not used to, you know, and, and Russia had their issues with Afghanistan in the eighties, right. Where they kind of come up on the same thing. And then you've got the, um, whereas, you know, cold war, you've got this kind of world war two fallout and world war two was just, you know, one, one nation lines up on one side, the other nation on the other, and then they just they come at each other. And it's, I think you get a lot of that that comes over in the espionage because it's not just men in, in top hats and wool coats talking very cryptically in rooms like Bridge of Spies was. You know, it's struggling for survival in these incredibly densely populated bazaars where, you know, is there a bomb that's going to go off? somewhere soon it, it's it's a race against time you know there's there's no patience in modern day espionage just because of what's at play versus this this sort of old way of of doing things i really thought that was an interesting dynamic between the two i think the chaos that's being depicted is also indicative and this kind of goes back to like the the sense of like timelessness versus very affixed to its time and place is bridge of spies is being made where we know the ending. The audience knows the ending. We know the Cold War's over. We know how the Cold War is going to end. Body of Lies, we don't know the ending. When that movie comes out, we're in the middle, uh, you know, we're in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan. If not, brought Osama bin Laden to justice. We are, you know, we were still actually, I'd have to look at when it came out, but it was probably earlier in the year, like we're still in the Bush administration. Like we're still, we have, like Barack Obama hasn't even been elected. Like we don't, we don't know how this ends. We don't know what the ending Mm -hmm. is. And that chaos really comes through in how this, and how it's depicted on screen of you just, this is a war on terror and it's us versus them. And, uh, they do a lot of like, uh, 
I don't know how I want to classify this, but you know, the the Russell Crowe character has a lot of like these people sort of statements of like mm-hmm. these people will stop at nothing. These people, and they really cast these massive Middle Eastern populations as kind of one group of people, um, and it's very that's funny. You just, wrote, I was yeah. just say, that's funny you said that because I literally wrote that down. I put in quotes these people because they say it a lot. Russell Crowe's character, yeah, yeah. Uh, so and he's obviously his character. That that's just the worldview that his character has to live in to kind of, you know, sit back at a computer monitor and look at these things from afar. Um, it's probably a little on the nose, to be honest, uh, in Body of Lies, uh, probably a little too much. But, um, yeah, he just kind of has this very, very basic uh, geopolitical knowledge of the world, and it's just like, this is a war on terror. We have to find these people and stop these people before they create more acts of terror. And I feel like, again, that chaos is depicted in that way because it's the movies being written and produced in a time when we really don't know what the end of that looks like. Yep. The anxiety and uncertainty of those those years just jumps off the screen. You're 100% right. I, I agree with you about it. his character being a little on the nose, though, because he very clearly is a stereotype of a certain type of American um, from then and, and now. But... Um, you know, there's the scene where he and Hani and Ferris are all, uh, Hani's the Jordanian um, intelligence Mark guy. Mark Strong if, character. If folks don't remember. Yeah. And Russell Crowe's character, who by all rights should know better as someone who theoretically is competent in his job at least. He's gotten this far. I, he just is kind of bungling this meeting with Hani. Like he, he has no sense of what he should or shouldn't say even though Ferris tried to get him to, you know, try to walk him through it. And it's not like he's doing the first day on the job as a field agent. He's meeting with someone who almost is a peer from another, you know, uh, country. And his, his jingoism is getting in the way of, of him even being a competent uh, character at that moment. So I kind of agree with you. It's a little, little much. It's, it's almost uh, to the point. It's almost over the top. Yeah. Like that. It was like a, like the way it's play. written, yeah, the way it's written is almost over yeah. the top. And I, at first, I liked juxtaposition between uh, the DiCaprio characters on the ground, and he's facing these, you know, these, uh, you know, these dangers every single day. And the Russell Crowe character is literally like dropping his kids off at school and like talking him through this mission yeah. as he's like dropping. I, I liked it at first, but as the movie went on, I, I did kind of have that feeling of like this seems a little. Again, I think he's he's certainly a stereotype and a representation of a certain kind of American, um, but it just seemed a little. It seemed very much like a movie character, and it lost a little bit of the realism for me. Yeah, yeah, I was I was gonna say that as well because that whole just yeah those multiple sequences where it's just, it's very intentionally, and this I think goes back to Ridley Scott at times his reach exceeding his grasp, right? Where he's um, you know when, when you look at Bridge of Spies. Everything had a very intentional weight to it. There was a weight to everything the characters were doing, what they were saying. They knew it. They felt it. It was it was very, um, very prominent and intentional. And with the overt sort of casualness of Russell Crowe and how he went about his job, like you said, dropping his kids off at school. He's like, he didn't even mute the phone. He's talking to DiCaprio, who's like running through the streets, dodging bombs. And he's like, you know, oh, I love you, son. You know, have fun at practice. And it's, yeah, it just kind of was like, 
you know, I, like I understand this sort of cavalier nature that he's trying to trying to to put at play here, but that and and yeah, there is a very specific thing that he's going for, Ridley Scott, and trying to to have that character there. But then at the same time, when you have uh, like a Bridge of Spies where the Tom Hanks character sees the the humanity, the whole purpose of why Hanks, of why Donovan keeps fighting is sort of, you know, he sees this guy who's a spy and everyone in America hates him because he's this nameless spy, right? He's, it's Russia. He might as well be Russia for all they care, you know, and just, you know, hang him, you know, off with his head type of deal. But Hanks is like, this guy's a human. He's doing his job. And does he not deserve the rights of other humans, right? And then the Russell Crowe character is sort of meant to take that idea and just flip it on its head, right? Not in a direct contrast to, to Bridge of Spies or to any of that story, obviously, because it came out before it, but but just as from a trope standpoint. And then, but then you you even have this time where Leonardo DiCaprio pursues this woman in Jordan, right? And for, for to be in a relationship with her, they she invites him over for dinner to meet her sister. And then her sister, as soon as they sit down, just starts berating him about like what his country is doing and why he's not helping and, and what he could be doing better and all this sort of stuff. And this is the moment where you can kind of, you know, you could almost have that Mark Rylance, that standing man speech, right. Where, where that really sort of clicks something in Tom and in the Donovan's head to where he's like, okay, now I get it. And that's why it's important to fight for this, not because of, of you know, supporting this spy that we captured, but supporting humanity on all fronts. And then they kind of have that moment, and they peek at it, and then it just gets shrugged off by DiCaprio, and that's it. And you don't really dive into it anymore. And it's like, oh, you were right there, and there was, there was an avenue to do it, and it wasn't done. It was frustrating. To me, I Ridley Scott in this movie, I tell you what this movie reminded me a lot of, and not, I'm unfavorably comparing it, is a lot of Oliver Stone's work. It seems like he really wants to criticize the United States government, which is kind of a, you know, that's very much a theme that has followed Oliver Stone through his whole career, and the conspiracy behind governments and, and world governments at play. But like you said, there's just all these moments where it it feels too over the top. It feels too on the nose. And there's these moments that he kind of just misses, I feel like, because it's not necessarily in his wheelhouse in the way that it would be maybe for another filmmaker. I don't know. That's, that was just my feeling on it. Yeah. And, and then, cause it's, there's, there's, and, and there's stuff like that where he misses, but then visually, Right, really, Scott's always had a really good visual eye, but then there's so much stuff that, um, you know, in this movie that can even rival Spielberg almost. Where the the scene where there's a meeting out in the desert, and they've got all the cars that come cars. up and they circle the person so that yeah. they can create this sort of mini dust storm so that the satellites can't see what's happening, and then they come out in three different ways, and you see it like from the satellite view, and all the cars are are departing, and they have to choose which one they want to follow, and I mean, that's a really, like, stunning visual scene, you know? And so you see that, and it's like, man, there's something great here. There's something really good here, but it just doesn't quite hit the mark. I think that's the single best part of the movie. That's the the one thing that I remembered about it, actually, and the one thing I'll keep, I'll take with me, that that shot. I mean, that setup. It was, so, that it was so well done. And then, and not only, you know, 
because we with British Spies, it's obviously like you said, it's based on a true story, and we we're so, we have to get the resolution to the Mark Rylance character. Abel is his name, right? So, you know, he's going to be handed off, and he's going to go off at a you know whether he survives or not. I don't know if we even know to this day the actuality, but the whole Aisha character, this this woman that um, DiCaprio's Ferris pursues, and and she actually gets kidnapped at one point. In, in order to try and bait out Ferris so that they can they can capture him and try and get information. And we just like never get a resolution to her character. He's just like, What what did you do to her? And the um Mark Strong character is like, you know, oh, it's fine. And, yeah, we treated her fine. And, and then okay. it's like and so you you kind of thought, okay, because DiCaprio and, and Crow have this big square off scene where Crow's like, you've done great. We're going to give you a promotion, you know, and, and DiCaprio's like, man, you don't, again, this is another moment too, because Ferris could have just been like, man, you don't even realize what's going on. You don't, you don't understand these, because throughout the movie, Ferris has multiple points where he's talking to Russell Crowe's character. And he's like, what are you going to do about this person's family? You know, they just, they tried to get us in, Intel and they just got killed in the line of duty we got to do something for him. Russell Crowe's like, I don't give a shit. They gave me the information I need. That's all that I care about. Right. Again, two on the nose, but again, the, the, the final scene between the two, we could have had a bit of a square off about this, but again, it just kind of gets glossed over. And then you even think, okay, well maybe DiCaprio is just trying to Ferris is just trying to, to get out of there so he can go meet up with Aisha again and they can live happily ever after. But no, he just goes and he just buys some fruit. And then we're like, all right, see you later. Like, man, ah, I interpreted that we're supposed to understand that he's going to go supposedly right off into the sunset with her. Yeah. But that's clearly why he wanted to stay. And maybe yeah. he was just waiting until he knew they weren't watching him anymore. And that's when he was going to go find her. But like, okay, give it to us. Show us that. Give us something. But was- honestly, the whole thing honestly was kind of cliche. Like, I just think even the, the uh, you know the integration of the the potential romance. It, I don't know. There were a lot of things in this movie like that. It was very forced. It, it was very forced, and it really felt like a movie. I mean, it just it really felt like a Hollywood. It's Leonardo DiCaprio. He's attractive, so we got to get him with a girl. You know, it just it it just kind of felt like he had to do that because they cast Leo. Yeah, and every character feels one dimensional. I mean, despite attempts to try to make them sometimes seem deeper, they're all just, there's not much more beyond what you're seeing. Yeah, there's no development. Yeah, I agree. One thing, I put in the show notes, um, a missed opportunity, and I think this maybe kind of goes to the heart of some of the things we're saying. A lot of it's just kind of paint by numbers, right? Uh, it's like, it's a spy movie, we get the double cross, and we, you know, we're just expecting these things to happen. In the final torture scene when all of a sudden the deus ex machina of Hani's Jordanian anti-terror troops bust in and save Leonardo DiCaprio right as he's about to be stabbed in the chest. Um, that just felt so, so wasted to me. Like I, I, I'm no filmmaking expert. I'm no creative genius, but in like the two minutes that I was thinking about it when I was, I didn't want to just come with a problem and just say, this pissed me off. I wanted to come up with a solution. So I, I thought, how would I have preferred to see that go down? Um, and I thought, what if instead of it solely being from uh, DiCaprio's perspective in that room and we, the viewer, 
if you've never seen it before, don't know that he's about to be rescued. What if we saw it from Hani's perspective as well? And we know that there's a rescue team there and they're just waiting for the right moment and, or maybe they're not going to save him. It's all about what can, what Intel can we get? How long do we let this play out? You know, do I truly care about this guy as a person? Is he just an asset? Some explore some of these themes that have been kicked around this whole movie. And instead it's just, nope, the cavalry rode in. Even after the guy literally says the cavalry's not coming. And it's interesting because it actually, so I thought, because I'd never seen the movie, I watched it for the first time for this podcast. And knowing what we know about Ridley Scott and talking about how, you know, comparing and contrasting Spielberg and Ridley Scott, that Spielberg is up and Ridley Scott is down. Spielberg is hopeful. Ridley Scott is more pessimistic. I thought they were going to kill him. I thought the movie was going to end on this super depressing note and they were going to kill. We were going to get this really ultra-violent scene of Leonardo DiCaprio getting, like, sliced in half by this knife. And then it does a kind of a Spielberg thing where everybody, they come in to save the day and, oh, he's all right. He broke a couple fingers, you know, but it's everything's And it was, yeah, it was, that's kind of just this other little cliche that I feel like that's not very like Ridley Scott. There were a lot of things that were not like Ridley Scott in this movie. It, it surprised me a little bit that he directed yeah. this movie. It, it didn't feel like him. It had a no. lot of his visuals, but not a lot of his heart. Yeah. yeah. And, and, have you guys seen the movie Buried with Ryan Reynolds where he's stuck in the coffin? No, I have not. Well, I have not seen it. I know what you're talking about, but it's like he's in a coffin the whole movie. Well, do you care if I spoil it for you? Because I was going to bring up something relevant. Well, it, can, it can only go one of two ways. So, <laughs> Well, so in the, he's in the, he's in the coffin in the movie, and he, he's got a cell phone. And he's able to call because he's a uh, he's a trucker over in um, the Middle East. I can't remember if it was Iraq or Iran where it was exactly, but but he's a trucker over there. His truck gets blown up. He gets captive, but they give him the the cell phone because they want to they want to make it known and they want to try and try and get people to try and save him. Well, so he's he as a trucker is given this specific number that he has to memorize so that if anything like this happens, he can call them and try and get help. So he calls this person. And that's the only sort of dialogue we get in the whole movie is between Ryan Reynolds and this this uh, movie. It's a fantastic movie. You should watch it, even though I'm going to spoil it for you. <laughs> um, but so eventually, he's trying to give him all these clues, like, what do you hear outside? You know, where can we find you? And he, uh, at one point, he gets a call from the guy, and he's like, we found you. We know where you're at. Um, it was because of, you know, they had given you this newspaper to take a picture with. And we knew based on the background, I don't know, something, you know, they, he gave a very clear reason why they had it. And he's like, we're, we're on our way to get you. He's like, I'm with the team right now, you know, and they bust in and, and, you know, you hear some commotion from up above in the ground and you're like, oh, this is it. He's actually going to get rescued. And then it's just kind of silence on the other end. And the guy goes, man, I'm really sorry. It was actually so-and-so somebody else that they had talked about who they knew was dead. And he's like, that's the person that they found who was also buried alive. And so, you know, this guy, you know, and then they just kind of essentially fade to black from there. And it's really harrowing, right? It was really harrowing. And yeah, I, as I hadn't even thought about it until just now, but Steve, when you were talking about how could they have done it differently, what if they would have done it differently, right? Where, where Russell Crowe says, pick that one. And they follow that truck and they're, we get the the action sequences of them blowing down doors and, and going down and and we think we're they're about to come in right and the guy's got the knife in the air and they break we see from their perspective they break down the door and then all of a sudden the room's empty 
right? And then you see the knife come down and we get something. Like that would have been, I don't know if it would have saved the movie, but it would have made it a whole the hell of a lot more interesting. There are a lot, a lot of ways like, they could have done it that weren't as, as straightforward, yeah. It's like the Silence of the Lambs, which does that maybe better than any movie, where the FBI team, they think they're moving in on the serial killer at the end. They're at they're outside the house. They kick in the door, and then it goes to the killer, and he opens it up, and it's just Clarice there by herself. And you realize, oh no, they're at the wrong house, mm-hmm. and she's there yeah. by herself. It's so I, I love that movie. It's so effective. Yeah, that's a uh, but it's yeah, it's exactly yeah, it's exactly like that though. Yeah, they could have done that. Um, it, yeah, there's a number of things they could have done differently. I don't know. But so anyway, I, do we even need to put this to a vote? It sounds like we're all kind of on the same page here. I, I think Bridges Fives is going to be the winner this week. It's the winner for me. So definitely yeah, the winner I, for me. I uh, not only is Bridges Fives the winner. I you I think gosh I forgot which one of you said it not even an hour ago, but that that you think this is the best one of um, Tom Hanks's career, maybe in the last ten years or whatever. I, I, I think it's I think it's Spielberg's best oh, film of the last Steven 10 Spielberg years. Yes. And I, I do think that it's Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance. I, I mean, if you were going to hold me to a reason, I think Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio have been much better in many other films. Oh, I think no Tom doubt. Hanks and Mark Rylance, the, I think the acting, I think the acting yeah. is is better and it's just so nuanced, and there's stuff that these actors are doing in Bridge of Spies that I think is just bad. I mean, I, this is one week where I think the acting alone kind of elevates uh, yeah. one movie over the other for me. I agree. I, th- I think it's one of Spielberg's better films. Uh, I'd have to sit down and look at them all and rank them, you know, literally number by number to say where, but it, it, the first time I watched it, I liked it. But for whatever reason, this time I'm like, this thing, this is a really, really good movie. Uh, one of the one of the fun things about this show that we're doing is is forcing myself to watch movies that I may not have seen and that were always, maybe they were even on my list and it just kind of never got around to it. Yeah. Um, and Body of Lies, it's like, eh, you know. But with Bridge of Spies, I'm really glad that I saw it. Yep. It had a. I won't bore you guys with some of the legal stuff, but some of that stuff hit really close to home too. Um, when he the judge he and the judge are in the chambers with the other counsel and the judge is basically like, come on, your guy's guilty. Uh, yeah. I was like, telling, oh. I was telling that to, to my wife where I was just like, yeah, you know, he's, he's trying to, to appeal. And the guy's like, well, they had a, they had a warrant for a, an arrest, but they didn't have a warrant for a search. All the, the evidence mm-hmm. from the search shouldn't be admissible. And fruit and of the, the poisonous tree. Like, come on. Let's call him. Come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> like well, the, I've, fucking peter griffin out there but it's um yeah it's and not then, a fun position to be i'm not i didn't do criminal law i did like one or two cases but nothing of course like that but i had some civil cases and there was one in particular and a judge basically kind of did that like in chambers me and another attorney opposing counsel and it was basically like eh, come on we can make a deal here it's like which is you do not expect that to happen and it, you don't know how to react uh, yeah. So I, you know, and the stakes in that were much, much different than this. Yeah. And, and they, you know, it, it going up to all the way up to the Supreme court was, they kind of glossed over the actual Supreme court scene, which was probably good. Cause I don't know. I love his speech though. Much oh my gosh. Yeah. It was a very I'm good telling speech. You, man, but, I was pulling up my little patriotic heartstrings. The, and the only real point of having that in there was to kind of show how America as the system was failing this test of humanity, 
right? A test of, 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 I don't even know if law, cause I don't even know if that's right. It, it makes me think of the uh, Denzel Washington quote from training day, right? It's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Well, in this case, they yeah. were looking at, they were looking at it from it's what we know, not what we can prove because everyone's like, everyone knows this guy's a spy. He admitted it. He was a spy. So they knew that. And there was nothing else they had to prove. That's it was just it. It was over. Seem the thing. Um, I don't think he ever actually admitted it. They just it, this the evidence publicly. That's true because there were admissible or not. It was just so overwhelming that it was so obvious. Yeah, that's true. That's true. In the um, the court of public opinion, that it was true. But yeah. That's true. I, well, I was kind of thinking of the scenes where he tells Tom Hanks, where he says, "Guys like me," and talking about spies. But that is, of course, protected with attorney-client privilege, so that wouldn't have been public. So that that's true. And he does uh, make it a point with him too. He even says, "Do you want to know?" You know, yeah. explicitly. And he's like, "Does it make a difference? I gotta, yeah. I gotta defend you the same either way." But um, it, it was th- that was another sort of slightly interesting con- contrast between the two, right? Where this sort of failure of America in different ways, but it was just so much more impactful and believable in the way it was presented in *Bridge of Spies* versus *Body of Lies*, where the the failure was in sort of Russell Crowe and his cavalier attitude towards all of this stuff that was just no more important than being at a soccer game. Yeah. You know, to him. And the whereas the flip side, Tom Hanks is willing to give up his yeah, sacrifice um, everything. His, his reputation, his family's safety. They were shooting into his the window of his house. I don't know if that was real, uh, like if that actually happened in According real life. According to Wikipedia not, but, it did not, but I like the yeah. addition for yeah, I mean, person, it's yeah, it, it that that whether it actually happened or not, that fear was probably there. Yeah, and so you know that that was a sacrifice that he was willing to make to do what he um, thought was was right and to sort of right this wrong that he had felt been that he felt had been done, but but there was just none of that in body lies. And uphold. It sounds silly, I think, a lot to some people in some instances, but it's one of the things that upsets me when people upsets a strong word, but triggers me like you know people get triggered um when people talk about lawyers you know lying and cheating and stuff and joking around with it like we take a literal oath to uphold you know just like military members do to uphold the constitution defend it to be honest to to, uh, tribunal to conduct ourselves in a certain way and like i at least for one hold that very very sincerely and so the fact that he's wrestling with that personally not only his belief in the law but what he's you know bound himself to um i don't know it was it was very very on point for me as a former technically still attorney but you know not practicing so it was good and they mentioned a case that i hadn't thought about since law school so when he's talking to the judge he's like yikwo versus hopkins 1886 or whatever i'm like i don't know that it just like sprung up into my brain that was fun. Jeff, what's our tally at now? All right. Now we're at four to three. Um, Steven Spielberg taking the lead this week. So about halfway through the season here, and um, Spielberg has having the slight lead. So it's uh, quite interesting. You know, I, I don't know. I think just as we sort of come to the halfway point, I think my initial thought was that, you know, maybe this is my Spielberg bias, but that Spielberg was going to cream him 
going to cream Ridley Scott in terms of a head-to-head. But as the here we are. I kind of thought that was going to be the result as well. So I'm I've been shocked. Yeah, and it's um, you know this week was was quite a, a bit of a disparity, um, but most of the other weeks, even if you know one has we've decided on which one we thought was better, they've still been pretty close. I mean, you know, the duelists and duel Jaws and Alien. Schindler's List and Gladiator was was a little bit different, but Counselor 1941, Blade Runner Minority Report, Prometheus, uh, you know, the Plain God week with uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, Jurassic Park and Lost World. I mean, and now these two. So there's been, it's been interesting to see it go. We've got got a lot more left. And next week, um, shoot, I had it just pulled up with me. Next week, we are on the run. Sugarland Express, ex- <clears throat> Sorry, Sugarland Express <laughs> versus Thelma and Louise. Now that's actually really interesting because this is the 30th anniversary of Thelma and Louise this year. So that was unplanned, <laughs> by <laughs> us, but that's pretty cool all the same. So um, that'll be really interesting. Have you guys and... seen either of these movies? I watched Thelma, Thelma and Louise, and Louise yes. in college. Yeah, I've never seen Sugarland Express. Same. I'm watching it for the first time. I've never seen either. Somehow I've never saw Thelma and Louise. Wow. So yeah, this will be a this will be a fun one next week. So on the run, everybody, tune in next week for that. And you know, thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you got any uh, any thoughts, concerns, feelings, additional notes, nuggets you want to put in there, Steve, give them the socials where they can where they can hit us up. We are at duelofthegreats at gmail.com if you want to email us, and then on all the little social media sites, we're at duelofthegreats. Um, except TikTok, where we are at Dual Podcast. So, all right, yeah, so yeah, hit us up. Yeah, if you got anything you wanna you wanna add or or we'd any, love uh, some feedback. Yeah, any possible um, show ideas? We're not opposed, even though we, you know we have the the season planned out. If there's a, a really good idea that maybe we do a side episode on, we're not opposed to that. So, well, let us know. But uh, until until next week, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll we'll see you next time.